On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Eric Weiss, the organizer of the New England Builders Ball. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. We talk for about an hour and I try and pull out their story and their perspectives on the stuff that they do in this world that we all love so much, right? So usually that's a frame builder. This week, it's Eric Weiss who organizes the New England Builders Ball. It's a small handmade bike show for uh, an afternoon that happens in Boston now. And uh, over the years since 2011, when it first started, it has happened in different cities in New England, sometimes happening during like a cross race event or something. And now it happens right on the Atlantic Ocean in the Seaport District. It's 19 Dry Dock Street at the Innovation and Design Building. It'll be Saturday, May 9th from 2 p.m., to 10 p.m. this year. I will be there uh, in addition to a lot of other small handmade builders. Uh, It's a really cool show, and so I wanted to get his perspective. I wanted to hear him tell the story of, you know, how the show started and changed over the years, but also, you know, his perspective about why he organizes it the way he does and what's important in, you know, maintaining the small uh, you know, accessible sort of artisanal flair that the show has. Uh, you know, it's each of these trade shows has a different feel to them, and uh, each of the trade show organizers have maybe a different driving sort of emphasis about you know why they want to organize the show they what the way they want to organize it. And so I think that's interesting to draw out. I had a really good time when I was at the show last time, which was the fall of 2018. And so now it'll be happening in the springtime. This is the first year, I believe, that it's in the spring. It's just $12 to get in. There's great food. There's beer. There's great music. Some of the world's most beautiful bicycles. And it's all in one room. It really feels a little bit more like an art gallery or something, like an art opening, than it does like a trade show in a big convention center. You don't have like... Uh, Mavic has a, you know, six conglomerated booths or something. It's much smaller scale and it's mostly small handmade companies that you see exhibiting. I'm going to attempt to rapid fire read through the list of exhibitors for the show this year. Bear with me. 44 Bikes, Arn, BW Jenks Cycles, Blinky Cycle Works, Boston Arts, Sports and Entertainment, Breezemeister Bicycles, Chapman Cycles, Chatham Hood Cycles, Cobra Frame Building, that's me, Dill Pickle Gear, Firefly Bicycles, Fluent Frameworks, Gaspar, Hofer Cycles, Keating Wheel Company, La March Bike Company, Mars Cycles, Metal Guru of the Outspoken Cyclist, the Philly Bike Expo, Pomegranate Bikes, Pratt Frameworks, Root Ball Bikes, Roulet Cycles, Roulez? Seven Cycles, Smelter Bikes, Sputnik Tool, Velo Lumino, Velo Orange, or Velo Orange, if you're fancy, Vicious Cycles, Wake Robin Cycles, Waxwing Bag Company. And there might be one or two more that registered since yesterday. I'm not sure. There's a lot of cool, small, handmade bike-related companies. You gotta come. Well, the kernel of what created the New England Builders Ball was uh, I was hanging out with a friend one day, and NABS was going on uh, somewhere else somewhere not New England. I don't remember where it was that year. This was early 2011. So I was whining like, you know, why can't we get that show up here? I'd love to see these bikes, this amazing work. And the guy 
is my friend Richard turned to me and he said, instead of whining, why don't you just do something about it? Make your own show. <laughs> and it was sort of famous last words. And I, I, I thought to myself, well, I guess I could try. What's the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> yeah, at the time, I had a one-year-old at home. And I think I was so tired all the time that I didn't realize what a terrible idea it was to take on a project like this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, long story short, here we are about to put on show number nine. It wow. was definitely easier in the beginning. The show was a different scale. There were no expectations. You know, for instance, that very first year, the first show in 2011, I think it was September or October, it was free to be an exhibitor. Uh huh. Because I didn't want to urge people. And then it turned out that I like put on a really lousy show. I would feel like a piece of crap, right? And then it was also free for attendees to walk in. And there was a, a cash bar that the hotel made money on. Um, and I had had this rehabbed Roaring Twenties grand ballroom on the top floor of a downtown Providence hotel, um, reserved for the entire day anyway. I was putting on a conference that day uh -huh. and the conference, the conference ended at five or six, but I had the whole space until midnight. So why not use it? So my expenses were low. So I talked with the guys from circle a cycles, um, <laughs> Chris bull and Brian Chapman, of course, Brian Chapman still, yeah. um, uh, you know, a, a noted figure in bicycle frame building. And they both thought, sounded like a good idea. I mean, for them, they would only have to go about a mile <laughs> with their equipment. They said, let us talk to a couple more people. Let's get some, you know, some other uh, perspective, some other opinions and see what happens. So I, Chris, I think talked to Mike Flanagan, mm -hmm. who at the time was doing his alternative needs, transportation, ant bikes. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's a legend in the field as well. Yeah, coming out of Fat City and Indie Fab, later on um, working for Seven and now working at Hot Tubes, um, and he gave it sort of a tentative thumbs up. So that was good enough for me, and so I just put the call out. And what do you know? I mean, since it was free to come, I didn't do much in the way of keeping track of who was going to come and who wasn't and that sort of thing. But there it was, six o'clock. And people are walking into the room with these beautiful bicycles and setting up around the room. Yeah. And so fantastic. one of the things I wanted to, um, I asked you this yesterday, but like, uh, basically you, you said you've never built a bike frame or taken a class. You're relatively unfamiliar with, you know, metalwork and those processes. Right. But you just, you, you find custom bikes to be especially beautiful. Like what's been your relationship with frame building uh, over the years and you know like what what's your situation I, I guess I don't know <laughs> how to ask that exactly <laughs> well I've I've loved bicycles for a long time it goes back to I think well everybody I think just about everybody you know their first real sense of freedom is when they're a little kid and they learn how to ride a bike and that's you know the wind in your hair of course I grew up before every kid had to wear a helmet so it was definitely the wind in my hair and the sense that you know, I was away from my family now. My, my father wasn't, you know, holding on to the back of my saddle. I didn't have the, the, uh, the wheels, the training wheels. And that was real amazing 
freedom. Yeah. And then when, when I was six years old in 1976, the Summer Olympics were in my time zone in Montreal. And we had this tiny little black and white TV and it was mostly, and it was terrible signal and mostly snow on the screen. But if you kind of relaxed your eyes and used your imagination, you could see what was going on. And I saw track cycling as a six-year-old wow. from Montreal. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, when I grow up, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a bike racer when I grow up. That's you know, awesome. So everybody, you know, everybody's got this thing. They, what do they want to do when they grow up? They want to be a veterinarian or, you know, a doctor or whatever. The only thing that I ever wanted to do when I grow up, when I was a little kid, was to be a bike racer. Wow. That never happened, of course. <laughs> and I didn't really try all that hard. But I've always loved bikes and bicycling. It led to my career, which is being a transportation planning consultant working with towns and cities and states to create more bicycle and pedestrian friendly infrastructure and, and programs and policies. Mm -hmm. But it also led to led directly to me putting this show together. Yeah. And it, uh, it's a great show and I want to, you know, talk more about the specifics of the show. I guess what led you into the, the handmade sort of bicycle world? You just love bikes a lot and you were aware of it from some other handmade shows or you knew, Circle A cycles and you knew a couple of the sort of local handmade builders or was there any backstory with with how you got specifically uh, tapped into the handmade community? I wasn't all that familiar with, you know, domestic small scale bicycle production until I was in my late 20s, early 30s, probably when I actually started seeing people riding around here in Providence on their Circle A's and it I got fascinated looking at the, you know, the, the detail and the, the idea that you could have, just as you could have a tailored suit, you could have a tailored bicycle. Yeah. It seemed so wonderful to me. And I somehow got permission from my wife to get one for myself. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I must have been particularly nice that week or something um, <laughs> 10 years ago. But I, I own 22 bikes now, and that Circle A single speed is definitely the most beautiful of them all. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, I love that, too, that the handmade bike world could be appealing and interesting to people who don't just make them. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's always refreshing when somebody is interested or enthusiastic about it, and it's not uh, only, you know, someone who's already an insider. It's uh, you got, got to be glad when you get a reminder that it is actually a, kind of relevant to, to other people who are not fabricators. Yeah. It's like, um, I, I love beautiful uh, sculpture. Now, I don't know anything about, you know, how to work with all the different materials that sculptures are made from, whether it be different types of metals or, or clay or ceramic or what have you, mm -hmm. but I'll go to those museums and I'll go to those galleries and I'll check them out. That was more or less the situation with the Builder's Ball, except the difference was there was no gallery to go see this, this art. Yeah. So I basically, I essentially had to make it yeah. so that here in the Northeast, in New England, people would have that place to go to see this amazing work. Yeah. Now, you described the show as sort of like, um, you know, maybe lower pressure in some ways than some of the other shows, especially with regard to like exhibitors. Uh, you would like it to feel that way. 
you know, the, the cost of a booth is lower. You're only exhibiting for, you know, one day versus a whole weekend, you know, some of these things. And I think the the vibe of it is just a little bit kind of low key, small, more intimate. And so, yeah, it does sort of feel uh, more like a, like a, like a art show or something than it does like a, a big trade show. Is there a specific emphasis that you have trying to maintain a balance where, Certainly a lot of these frame builders and like, I, I have a booth I'm exhibiting and I don't even uh, sell bike frames. I sell tools. So like there's gotta be an element of trying to control it so that it continues to feel that way. And it doesn't maybe become too commercialized or has that worked itself out uh, due to the nature of small scale bike production or, um, you know, do you have to work hard to curate that s- smaller, more artistic flavor? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, um, and one that I have to focus on every year. We're, you know, speaking right now, we're a little over two months out from the show and it's sold out. There isn't a single booth left. Nice. I'm and glad I, I purchased my my space yesterday when there were three left. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I could probably wait, but I just need to stop putting it. Up. I'm really glad I got it. <laughs> yeah, you, you got in just under the wire. And on the one hand, there's obviously demand from builders and it would be great to go to a larger space so I could accommodate more. But in doing so, it might damage the feeling that the show makes. And so it's by design now. You know, it's more curated. It it's, uh, has that gallery feel. It's, it's an excellent vibe. But it wasn't by design in the beginning so much. It just happened that the spaces that I put the show in created that vibe in the first years. So the first three years, it was in these a uh, couple different hotel grand ballrooms and then for year four it was in new england's largest indoor botanical gardens so Mm -hmm. there's these palm trees everywhere and it was really cool and very different because you know what kind of consumer expos do you go to that are inside that are basically like an indoor jungle wow and then year five it went into this 1890s uh, event space that was, you know, it's beautiful with dark wood everywhere and just gorgeous. And it's never been in the sort of environment that creates a more stressful uh, sensation. Yeah. You know, when you're in a when you're in a convention center and the fluorescent lights are beating down on you and you've got that ugly ugly industrial carpeting under your feet yeah. and you hear the hum of the HVAC. 24-7, it just doesn't feel good. You know, it, you feel like you're in a place that you can't wait to get out of. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to enjoy myself while I'm here, but I know I'm not going to enjoy it that much longer. So the Builder's Ball has never been in a room with that harsh fluorescent lighting. It's always been in a space that's kind of creative and interesting and lends itself to people enjoying where they are. And yeah. that's for both the exhibitors and the attendees, because... I want all, everybody to come back every year to enjoy this show. Yeah. It, it's about, you know, the show is a platform so that all these builders can show off what they do to potential customers. And I want them to enjoy the platform that I'm giving them. And I want the attendees to feel comfortable uh, as well. And so there's no high pressure vibe uh, on, from anybody to uh, be, be pounding on the, on the sales because it's all just going to come naturally because everybody's feeling comfortable 
and having yeah. a good time. Yeah. And so over the years, the show has evolved, I'm sure, and uh, maybe grown a little bit, or, you know, you're saying that there's maybe, it may be more stressful for you now because it's a little more professional and you're trying to, you know, give people a predictable experience or something. Uh, what, what has that growth been like over the years and what kinds of changes have you encountered? And it's different now than it has been at other points, you know, like what sort of guided your, your vision of, you know, what you wanted to do? That's a good question. It's been in, so it's in Boston now. This is the third year in Boston. And I wanted to move the show there because it's the largest metro area in New England. And so for, from an attendee standpoint, it's just easier for a larger number of people to get there. Mm-hmm. And from a, an exhibitor standpoint, there's a stronger likelihood that a greater number of people will show up. Yeah. But at the same time, wanting to keep that low stress, low key vibe so that people don't feel like they're walking into a traditional trade show um, has been really important. And uh, all through this, you know, through the nine years, that's been consistent. And the other consistent thing that I need to keep a focus on is making sure I don't lose money doing this. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Because the year that the show loses money is the last year that I can do this show. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, fortunately, we've got, you know, really good relationships and uh, have Velo Orange as our sponsor for the second year in a row. That really takes some pressure off from me. And Narragansett Beer is our beer sponsor again for the second year. Mm-hmm. And that really helps as well. Um, I think before the beer sales, I, I'm probably still in the red. Yeah. So it's um, working on those sponsorships really helps. But I think, I think you're, the question that you originally asked was how it's changed and how my approach to it has changed. I think that the end goal has always been the same. But depending on where the show is, Boston versus Providence, there's different things I have to do to get it there. Yeah. And then pressure on me to make sure that I deliver what the exhibitors are expecting. Even, you know, it it may, the the price to exhibit, the fee may be just a fraction of what other bike shows are charging, but it doesn't mean that, that I feel less pressured to deliver. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a, as a side note, I think that's a lesson in business is that like you might not charge nearly as much as your competitors for a bicycle or, you know, in my case for a tool or whatever it is that you're selling. That doesn't mean that people aren't entitled to some amount of expectation. And, you know, maybe that says something about the expectation that you might set for an experience, depending on how much you paid for it. But, um, you know, it's, it's important to charge what you need to to be sustainable so that when problems arise and stuff, you're not, like, already in the red and now you have no <laughs> no resources to draw into to try and, you know, uh, fix things. And that's something I've learned, yeah. at least, and I've seen that with frame building, too, is, like, if you're, if you're basically giving a bike away and then somebody has an issue, like you did the fit wrong or something, and now you already lost money on the project, it makes it really hard to sort of service your customer and that's uh i think something i learned uh, you know about why it's important to to try and run things at a profit most of the time if you can is then it gives you that ability to actually service the people and i'm sure there's some parallels to that with the show and you know you're you're, even if you do offer stuff at a lower price you're still going to feel this this obligation to to try and deliver something for people and 
It's true. And, and there's, there's another wrinkle to it, which is I keep the price low, uh, not because I'm super generous, but because, uh, <laughs> but because I want the show to be affordable yeah. for some of these newer builders who maybe are you know, operating kind of hand to mouth for a time. Yeah. And they, there's no way they can afford to show at NABS or mm-hmm. possibly not even at Philly. So I feel an obligation to them to provide an experience that they can afford, even if it takes a couple payments or if they have to wait on their next order down payment in order yeah. to pay me. I want to make sure that, that it's as good an experience as possible for them. Yeah. You know, for, for a larger company, paying my fee is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. But for some of these guys, that's a lot of, it can be onerous. And so from that standpoint, I feel like I owe even more to make sure that that experience gets delivered. Yeah, I think it's a really valuable service to want to provide. And it is, I think, a really good value. If you compare it to other shows, it's very affordable, especially as a regional show. Something like NABs, I think, is difficult because not only is the cost of entry something like $900 for a booth and you're not allowed to split it. You know, booth sharing really makes things a lot more affordable. Like at Philly Bike Expo, you can split a booth and at NABs you can't. But then, uh, you know, a show that hops around is very rarely going to be um, right right in your neighborhood. And so you're probably going to have to fly and pay for hotels. And, and that really adds up. Whereas if you... For me, I live five hours from Boston, and so I can just drive. I have some friends in the area I can stay with for a night or two, and I can do the show for the booth price. And you know, so the regional model with a lower price for a booth is just massively, massively more attainable to smaller businesses. Yeah, so I, I do feel proud of being able to provide that opportunity, and that's taking nothing away from NABs. I think what Don yep. Walker has done is really astonishing, and he's made yep. this international this international show. Yeah, it's changed um, the industry completely. Yeah, and, and to, to go to his show and see builders from <laughs> from every continent except Antarctica yeah. is really remarkable. And boy, what an experience. And, uh-huh. you know, I've, I've gone a couple times, once in Charlotte and once in Hartford, and it was a remarkable experience. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, he does, a, he does a great show, and I think the bike industry would be in a different place without uh, the legacy of NABs for sure. What are some of your proudest elements of the show? I think we're hitting on some of that. I mean, the, the way that you're trying to make it maybe a little bit more accessible. Uh, is there anything else you, that comes to mind, you know, like the proudest things that you have when you look back at what the show is doing? Well, I think what we just touched on, um, you know, having it be affordable for yeah. new, newer builders is probably the one, the one thing that stands out the most. Yeah, and I think that's something to be proud of for sure. Yeah, you know, creating this platform and trying to make the platform get higher and higher every year, but yeah. still be just as easy, just as easy for exhibitors to to get a seat on. Yeah, um, and it when uh, I it's um, been really important. Yeah, I only made it the one year. You know, the last time you did it, which was actually the fall of twenty eighteen, I guess. Um, right. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, so it'll be like a year and a half between shows this time. But anyhow. Mm-hmm. That one that I was at, yeah, it really did have sort of like a like a art show feel to it. That it didn't feel very commercial and it felt more cozy. And it, it really is a different feel than uh, the other shows that happen in a convention center. For anyone who hasn't been there, it really is uh, sort of a different vibe to it. Now, in years past, didn't you have it like at a cyclocross race? It was yeah, right. So the one of the origins 
yeah, the origin of the show was that it was done sort of in spiritual partnership with Providence Cyclocross Festival, which turned into KMC CrossFest, an international quality uh, cyclocross event, which was here in Providence for a few years and then moved to Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be moving to Hartford late this year. But yes, it would be always its first, I guess, five years? I guess, I think the first five years of the of the Builder's Ball, it was always timed to be in, in the evening um, during CrossFest. And it was just an evening show, mm-hmm. 7 to 10, 7 to 11, 6 to 10, whatever the hours were going to be, just an evening show. So at the time, using the term ball made a bit more sense. Mm, yeah. And so that's the origin of, of that. And moving it to Boston and separating from CrossFest, uh, which had moved to a rural area of Connecticut. And so it didn't make much sense anymore for me to have the bike show aligned with it. Yeah. But so moving it to Boston meant I was also able to expand the hours. Mm-hmm. Always, of course, making sure that it would not be on a weekend where there was racing going on. Scheduling it in the fall was always tough because here in, the, in New England, it seems like every weekend there's another um, important cyclocross event, not just Providence slash KMC, but for years and years, Gloucester, uh, which sadly has, has gone away, and, and others. Uh, scheduling in the fall was always a real challenge. And so that's the primary reason that I moved it to be a spring show. Yeah. And of course, scheduling in spring has its own challenges. I'm not as worried about races. Not as worried about a you know a hurricane coming up the coast and being drenching rain all weekend and people not coming out to the show, but springtime is is sort of the hand built bike show season, right? So you've got nabs typically mm-hmm. in March, and bespoke in Bristol this year is the weekend before the Builders Ball. Oh wow! And the uh, Ann Arbor show that Frank Rotondo puts on is yep. the weekend. The weekend after, after the Builders yeah. Ball this year. I think I'll be and doing then, a doubleheader. Yeah. I think I'll be going from yours to Ann Arbor the next weekend. Good for you. <laughs> and the Australian hand-built show is sometime around there as well. So it's it's tight. I try to you know, keep in touch with James at Bespoke and Frank at the Ann Arbor show to make sure that I'm not getting in anybody's way. Yeah. Yeah, and I uh, at least I think between Ann Arbor and Boston, even if they were at totally non-conflicting times of the year, I don't think there would be a ton of overlap. I would I would imagine not a ton of overlap in in visitors because I think of them more as regional shows. That I think if you had to drive a straight line between the two, it would be like twelve or fifteen hours, or it's it's quite a quite a haul between them. And so they're just kind of I'm sort of right in the middle of the two of them, and I have uh, family in Michigan, so I'll, you know go to the Ann Arbor one for those reasons, but uh, I don't think there would be many people that would go to both of those. I agree. I don't think, I don't think there's a lot, it would cause a lot of damage, but I don't, it's, it seems like it would be really poor manners <laughs> to yeah. schedule two events on the same day. Yeah. And, same you know, there are some exhibitors. Um, I don't know who's lined up for Ann Arbor this year, but for the Builders Ball, you know, I, I do have a builder coming in from Ohio and for, for them, the Ann Arbor show is a lot closer. Yeah. And I've got a builder coming in from Western Ontario. And so, you know, very close to Detroit. Mm-hmm. For him, 
it would also be convenient. So I don't want to have to make any hard decisions. Could even be convenient to have Doubleheader Weekend. It's an exhausting slog. But on the other hand, let's say you get all your booth material prepped and you get some bikes that are ready. Maybe they're customer bikes and you don't want to hold on to them for six months. You want to, you want to pass them off to the customer. But if you get it ready just in time for the first show and then the next weekend you do the other show and now pass it on and you're done. You know, So there's possibly some upside to that. You know, get, sort of get... By the time you get ready for one show, it'd be a little bit easier to exhibit at the next, possibly. That's a really long 10-day period, though. Yeah, it is. Working, these, it working is. these shows is exhausting. It is, for sure. And yeah. uh, not everybody has a, sort of a work life. You know, I think a lot of small builders have a day job, of course. And so not everybody has that sort of work life that they can uh, get that much time you know, you got other things to take care of on the weekends and you might need to take an extra day on either end of the weekend in order to actually make the travel viable. So yeah, not always, uh, not always that smooth of a process for everyone either. No. Yeah. I mean, it's real long days working the shows. And then if you have any significant travel, yeah, you know, sitting well, in your car for four five, six hours, that's, it is that's not exactly, not exactly relaxing. Either. Yeah. But for me, having done the Philly Bike Expo three times, NABs once, your show once, the Ann Arbor show twice, I would say the Ann Arbor show and yours are just so... There's such a cakewalk compared to the other shows because the other shows, you get there the day before, you set up, and then you leave, and then the next two or three days, you're on your feet all day talking to people after parties, trying to make the most of it. And a show like yours... Uh, you load in the morning of, and you pack out the you know later that day, and uh, it's a long day, but it's one day, and so I think it is for for the exhibitor. Now I know for you, there's <laughs> it's a different situation. I'm sure it's a much bigger job for you, but for an exhibitor, that's part of what makes those great. And a lower bar of entry is not just the cost of the booth, but if you can, you know, if you can have a, a modest booth and set it up and be done in the same day, and you know, I think I'm maybe, I don't know if I'd say extroverted, but I'm comfortable enough talking to people. Uh, for some people, that can be really draining to stand on your feet and just talk to the public. You know, some people are less comfortable with that and to have to do that for three, four days. I mean, a lot of frame builders, part of the appeal is like working in your shop. You know, it's kind of, um, it, it's a little bit more quiet and uh, isolated. And there are certainly frame builders who enjoy that quiet place and to be at a show talking to people for a couple days can be intimidating and so you know i don't blame anyone for feeling overwhelmed at the thought of something like a, a nabs or a philly show which are two and three days long but uh to do something that's over and done with in a single day is a lot less uh social energy i think yeah for sure yeah every year after the show i send out a survey to all of my exhibitors um which they can respond to anonymously and every year I get, you know, a couple people say, you know, you really ought to turn this into a two-day event. So I, I put that question on the survey. Hey, you know, there's some, there's a few people who want to turn this into a two-day event. What do you all think? Year in, year out, it's like 75, 80% of the exhibitors say no way. One of the great things about the ball yeah. is that it is a one-day show. Yeah. And I don't think I would get I don't think I'd get anything more done in two days that I'm not getting done in one day now. Yeah, and something like a big convention center like NABs, you really do need a lot of time to meaningfully visit every booth and every exhibitor, but uh, the scale of your show is such that you know you can you can walk the show floor and even have a good conversation with most people and be done in you know 
the time allotted for sure. Yeah, it's uh, eight hours, two p.m. to eight. P- excuse me, two p.m. to ten p.m. with something like thirty booths. I should know offhand. Um, <laughs> I think it's something like thirty. So yeah, plenty of time to look at every bike that's in the room and have all those conversations and really get a sense of the approach that all the different frame builders use. So for people who are ready to take that step and get a hand-built bicycle, it's a really, um, really great show to come to, to do that. Yeah. And these, and these builders, they do remarkable, remarkable work. Yeah. Yeah. So much talent in the, in the show hall at once. It's crazy. And, uh, one yeah, of the things, I, I should yeah. probably, if, if hate to interrupt you, but I, I should probably tell people, uh, if they want to see who's exhibiting at the show this year, yep. best way to do that is, um, go to the website, which is new England builders com, And then one of the pages there is uh, 2020 exhibitors and you can see the full roster. Yeah. Um, all with hyperlinks to their, websites or Instagram pages, whatever they prefer, yeah. and also showing where they're based. So it's newenglandbuildersball.com. Yeah. And I'll maybe in the intro, I'll, I'll uh, fire off a list real quick or something, but uh, definitely it warrants going to the website and clicking through to see who's there. When I went a year and a half ago, I definitely met some people who were not yet on my radar. I didn't really know much about Galaxy Gearworks or... Uh, Fluent Frameworks or Pratt Frameworks. Uh, there were maybe a couple others. And um, certainly there were people that I did know of who I had never had the opportunity to meet in person. And I got to know Pioneer Valley Frameworks, uh, the folks at Firefly I had never met in person. There's a bunch of different people that I got to meet. Uh, Mike Flanagan from ANT. And, and then also just, you know, Brian Chapman and uh, Brian Hollingsworth and a few other people that I did know pretty well. Chris Henry, folks that uh, I knew already, but I got to see them again, and I, you know, love to catch up. So, uh, really, um, cool, too cool to get to meet the new people at the show for sure. And one thing that I've, I, I never stop finding astonishing is how many of these people are so amazingly nice. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a cross section of American society. I don't know what the percentage of people that are like actually really nice and good to talk with <laughs> uh, would be, but I, I, the, the number of these people that are regular exhibitors here at the Builders Ball that are just really great to talk with and are super nice, it shocks me yeah. <laughs> every year. Uh, I don't know. It's something, something in the, uh, in the flux that yeah. changes the brain, chem- brain chemistry or something. I don't know, but yeah. It's great. That's, that's funny, yeah. And I think mean, everybody is just tickled to to have the little community around. You know, you spend all this time in your shop working on stuff, and you know your friends and your family and your you know significant other and whoever else in your life probably don't share that same stupid nerdy interest that you have. But when you go to a show like this, here are your people, and so I think people are in a good mood uh, to get to to know the others. It's it's true, and. The exhibitors are really happy to see each other during yeah. setup and breakdown and all the conversations. And I, I sometimes I, I'm on my feet to, during the entire day, of course, but I, I keep my ears open. And the quality of the conversations is really high level. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's something that everybody appreciates. Yeah. 
I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, feel free to shout out anyone else. Like, who is responsible for the success of the show besides you? I mean, clearly you put a lot of effort into organizing it, but, you know, you have some sponsors that you mentioned, and uh, I'm sure there are other people who uh, volunteer and stuff. Like, what makes the show happen other than just the legwork that you provide? Oh, well, what a nice opportunity. Thanks, Joe. Uh, <laughs> For sure, for sure, the show sponsors this year, Velo Orange, um, which has such an amazing line of products, um, and Narragansett Beer, based up here in the Northeast, uh, here in Rhode Island, are, are, are a big part of what makes the show successful um, from a financial sense. And if it's not successful financially, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, so that's really important. Uh, I'll, I'll shout out. I mentioned earlier my friend who told me to stop whining and do something about it <laughs> and actually make a show. Yeah. That was Richard Fries, who a lot of people know from his work as a race promoter and uh, from Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition for a time as well. So he definitely, as the person who told me to shut up and do something about it, he definitely deserves a nod. Mm-hmm. But honestly, it's it's... Oh, and I should give... My, my number one volunteer every year is my friend Sean Condon, who's a, uh, an English teacher in Western Mass, but on weekends and evenings has a mobile bike shop called Speed and Sprocket Cycle Works in Northampton, Mass. And I couldn't pull off a setup and breakdown without him every year. But of course, the people that really make the show happen are the exhibitors and the attendees. Yeah. It's all the enthusiasm and wonderful work uh, that make the show uh, a really fun place to be. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for anyone else who might like to start a similar kind of, you know, regional handmade bike show or organize maybe another bike event where there are parallels or something? And you could also think of this question as advice that you would give to your former self, you know, as you were trying to figure this out in years past. Hmm. That's tough. I would say, um, don't be surprised if you lose money because <laughs> it's really tight. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say talk to as many people as you can before you pull the trigger because the more insights you can gather and input and opinions, the more of that information you have, the easier it'll be for you to make good decisions. And uh, I don't know if I can say much beyond that. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I think what makes it really hard to put on a show is it takes a lot of time, a lot of time, and very little remuneration. And so you have to be in it for something other than money. Yeah. And this is something that I feel passionate about. I feel really strongly about the importance of creating this platform, and that's why I do it. And you have to have that passion. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate that you uh, you make it happen. It's been, uh, I, I think it's really good for the frame building community to have this show in addition to the others. I think it provides something unique and valuable in its region, but also just in the context of, of all the shows. You know, the one time that I exhibited, uh, definitely it was good for business for me and, you know, made it a no-brainer to sign up again. And so, you know... I, as an exhibitor, I mean, there's a lot of things you get out of a show. You'd like to build community. You'd like to have an opportunity to just share what you're passionate about. Um, but, 
you know, if you're in business and you're spending money and time to go do something, and if you're in business of like the handmade bike or something like that, that is not just crazy profitable in the first place. Um, it really is kind of important or at least really helps if you can also, uh, you know, build some business out of it. And so it's been, it really makes it easier to come back again, I guess, you know, I would say to other exhibitors, uh, it was good for me. I guess I'm maybe in a little bit of a different position than, than frame builders, but, um, yeah, I recommend the show to people. Uh, it's a lot of fun and just the, the camaraderie of it. And, uh, I remember talking to a handful of folks at show teardown the last time, uh, Thomas from Porter Cycles and, you know, just a handful of people. And it's just a really, really cozy sort of feeling to, to be among these, uh, these other builders. Well, I'm glad that it was such a good experience for you, Joe. And uh, I really, I appreciate the, um, all the positive comments. Yeah, no, it's a great show. And uh, I, I hope it uh, continues to be a, uh, a thriving um, success <laughs> but uh i'll see you in two months at the show and um for anyone listening who's on the fence about coming uh just make your plans and and come on out it's better for everybody the more people who show up you know the more exhibitors and the the more attendees and the more buzz that it gets uh on the internet like you're saying you know if if it doesn't make money then it doesn't continue to happen and so people coming in the door is uh, one of the ways and and the sale of the the beer uh is another way so you know uh show up and, and come out it's a really good time yeah look forward to seeing as many people as i can cram in the room <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't tell the fire marshal <laughs> i'm sure you have plenty of capacity in that space but it's yeah it's ten thousand square feet we got room to fit lots of people in there yeah cool lots of people lots of beautiful bikes Mm -hmm. great beer great food great music a really good day yeah excellent thanks so much for taking the time to be on our show and uh and i'll see you soon thank you joe see you in may